Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And the Jeopardy GOAT tournament is underway. Two episodes have aired so far as of this recording, with Ken Jennings winning the first match and professional sports better and most famously, one-time Gamble On podcast guest, James Holzhauer winning the second. John, let's do some in-game betting. Who do you think is going to win this thing? Uh, and before you answer, I'm going to make a prediction about your prediction. You aren't going to say Brad Rutter. Uh, no, but I'll get to that. Uh, you know, Eric, I'm a casual fan who didn't even watch Jeopardy James all that much, uh, truth be told. Uh, but this lured me into really good programming. Um, I appreciated the interplay between, you know, Ken is risk averse and obviously a professional sports better like James is not. Um, that's not about intelligence. It's just about um, personality, really. Right. You know, and Ken acknowledged that James opened his eyes to another path of play and it's not in his comfort zone. And yet he knew he had to go there and, and it mostly worked. And uh, I think that's a cool dynamic. Um, I feel bad for Brad, though. Uh, yeah, he was a little nervous and he could but he could never catch a break on the daily doubles. And I think anyone thinks he's outclassed. I don't I don't agree with that. I think. Uh, the circumstances could have been a little different where he would have been uh, more competitive. Um, as far as uh, who I like, um, I think James is definitely the favorite. But Ken, with the daily doubles and his willingness to gamble, puts himself in play. If he has, gets the better of the daily doubles, I think uh, he can still win. Yeah, I, you mentioned you're feeling bad for, for Brad Rutter a, a little bit there. I, I certainly am. Um, I, I retweeted a, a tweet this morning uh, from uh, the, the fine podcaster Akiva Wieneker with a picture of Brad Rutter in the GOAT tournament side by side with a picture of Willie Mays in his Mets uniform. Um, I remember that, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, through two games, he seems like uh, Rutter is uh, totally overmatched and, and kind of washed. Uh, he's uh, unable to adjust so far to the way that, that James Holzhauer has changed the game, uh, whereas, as you said, Ken Jennings is making adjustments, uh, it seems, going out of his comfort zone, knowing he needs to be aggressive and put up big numbers to hold off James. Uh, so I'm, I'm maybe a little lower on Brad Rutter at this point than, <laughs> than you are. He just seems not not to have it. Um, but, uh, you know, Ken, Ken Jennings mostly won the first match just 
because of superior luck because of finding daily doubles while James didn't hit any of them. So, yeah, at this point, I'd say James looks like about a minus 250 favorite. Ken is maybe a plus 150 bet. And then uh, Brad, I don't know, maybe 15 to one, something like that. Yeah, well, if you can bet him on just the third game, third match, rather, you know, mm-hmm. he uh, he could be he could have a chance. But, yeah, he's not going to win the whole thing. Right. All right. Well, thank you to everyone out there for joining us for episode number 73 of the GOAT Gambling Podcast, Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 72 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud and on iTunes and the Apple Podcast app. Please subscribe, rate and review. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Roto Grinders director of media, Dan Bach. Uh, he's been called to duty for his third gamble on appearance because there's some serious controversy to talk about in the daily fantasy sports world this week. But first, we'll address that topic without Dan as we analyze the biggest news in yet another busy news week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Who would have guessed a few weeks ago when John reluctantly admitted to being a devoted viewer of The Bachelor that this would actually become relevant to his job covering the gambling industry? Uh, This past Sunday night, it did when Jade Roper Tolbert, a former Bachelor contestant who is married to former Bachelorette contestant Tanner Tolbert, won the DraftKings Millionaire Maker Tournament. Uh, Before I go into further detail about what happened and the surrounding controversy, John, let's take advantage of your expertise in a way that other DFS and gambling podcasts can't. So tell us, who are Jade and Tanner? What do we know about their relationship? Were they memorable characters on the show, etc.? Uh, well, yeah, I guess I'm all in here. <laughs> um, yeah, Jade was on the show maybe five or six years ago. I, I think it was the uh, bat, the Iowa Bachelor uh, landowner dubbed Prince Farming. Oof, yeah, she came in fourth or fifth. Um, she had the very pretty, naive look, you know. And then later in the show, um, as she reached the final four, she nervously reveals she had posed for some sort of risque photos back in the day, and um, that probably didn't hurt her appeal in general. Um, <laughs> So farming consoles her and then says it's not an issue, and then she gets placed on what we guys, sports guys call irrevocable waivers as soon as that <laughs> happens. So I don't know what that was, but it made her a sympathetic figure on uh, subsequent Bachelor Paradise when every guy uh, on earth seemed to be going for her. Mm-hmm. Um, Tanner had lost a few years earlier on his uh, show. Um, he seemed like the borderline too old single guy in Bachelor in Paradise, but mm. he hit it off immediately with Jade and reassured her photos were not an issue, and uh, they became the resort's power couple immediately. Um, every new guy wanted to be with Jade and, and no luck, and um, they never wavered. So they returned the next season, or, or it was the end of the season, I forget, but they were the conquering heroes to get married on the beach to show off to the, um, the wayward Bachelor in Paradise uh, contestants. Okay, and obviously it seems to be working. I understand they have two kids, so uh, yeah. yeah, this is a, a a happy happy ending for uh, the Bachelor Nation, I guess. And uh, uh, it's just funny uh, you, the way you're sort of tiptoeing into admitting how much you know. It kind of reminds me of uh, of when Jerry Jerry Seinfeld had that episode where he was uh, reluctant to admit he watched Melrose Place, and they hooked him up to a lie detector, and he and he admitted he knew all the details. So I watched uh, that show also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Melrose Place, you're saying not yeah, Seinfeld? I did. I, oh, I okay. Did. Both, both, both. Actually, yeah. it's all coming out. All right. <laughs> all right. Now on to what happened. Uh, with DraftKings. After Jade won the $25 buy-in tournament, there was a brief moment of, whoa, cool, a minor celebrity won a million bucks, and it's a woman. This is going to be so great for the industry. 
but that quickly subsided when the internet sleuths took over and found that Tanner and Jade both submitted the maximum number of entries, 150 apiece, and that this is something they do regularly for the big DFS tournaments. Fellow Bachelor alum Chris Randone, uh, who also plays DFS, congratulated Tanner, not Jade, on winning, uh, then deleted the tweet. People were getting a little suspicious. And then when experts started examining their respective lineups, it turned from curiosity to allegations of collusion. Uh, There's nothing wrong with two spouses each max entering, and there's nothing wrong with any two people talking strategy and coming up with similar lineups as a result. But what is clearly stated in the terms of use and the community guidelines is that you can't max out on entries under your account and then build more lineups using somebody else's account. And you can't work together to build lineups in a way that allows you to cover more player combinations while avoiding overlaps. And the examination of their lineups sure makes it look like one of those scenarios is happening as they had similar percentages of the various running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends, but exact opposite distributions of the quarterbacks on the four-game playoff slate as Jade built almost all of her lineups around three AFC quarterbacks and Tanner built all of his around three NFC quarterbacks. Uh, Suspicion snowballed. U.S. Bets published the first article compiling the facts and opinions and exposing what was going on. More mainstream outlets like the Washington Post and TMZ followed. And eventually, DraftKings issued a statement that it is investigating while holding the million dollars. As of our recording time, we do not have a resolution yet. John, any guess as to whether the Bachelor couple get their money? Uh, And I'm curious for your take also from a PR standpoint. How good would it have been for the DFS industry if Jade wins this thing without controversy? And does this story do any damage to DraftKings or DFS? Well, yeah, this whole thing seems brutal to me, uh, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, it would have been a great plus for the industry. Um, You know, I think a private settlement that immediately gives like half to the runner-up, worth it for him because lengthy legal fees could outstrip his not-so-certain court win anyway. Uh, And half to the bachelor couple seems sensible, even if not announced that way. You know, maybe a non-disclosure. Then Tanner and Jade, though, announced that whatever they got, they're giving away their winnings to, you know, shelters for victims of domestic violence or something uncontroversial. Um, Mm. That would kind of take the oxygen out of the whole crazy story and we can move on. That's a, that's a good idea about uh, some charitable contribution when it's all said and done. And I certainly uh, agree with you uh, about there being some NDAs, uh, whatever whatever the decision yeah. here. Um, in terms of the PR angle, I, I don't think it really hurts DraftKings or, or DFS. Uh, you know, it's not like the huge controversy in 2015 when DraftKings employee Ethan Haskell won big on FanDuel and, and that blew up. Um there's a little bit of what you always hear with, with DFS, that you can't win these things unless you enter the max amount of lineups. There's a little bit of that going around, so some people will be discouraged from playing, but not me. I'm, I'm going to keep entering my five $3 lineups every week, knowing exactly how <laughs> unlikely it is that I'll ever ever win big money. Um, but I guess how bad the PR is depends on what DraftKings ultimately decides. Um, I think if Jade and Tanner keep their money, uh, at least publicly, uh, they get to keep the million with all the signs pointing toward either collusion or multi-accounting. Maybe that snowballs into more negative press for DraftKings or, or some of the serious DFS players turning on the company. Uh, but my, my guess for what happens is similar to yours. Maybe not uh, maybe not the, the 50-50 split between them and the run, runner-up, but more like they get 
disqualified officially and second place moves up to first place, third place moves up to second and so forth. And then privately, DraftKings still gives them a, a big chunk of change along with an NDA, maybe the full million, maybe not, but sort of, a, you know, you can't talk about this. We're 99% sure you broke the rules, but just take this money and don't play on our site again. Uh, but I hadn't thought of the charity angle. That's that's a, a, a good uh, sort of cherry on top when it's all said and done. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there's nothing uh, it's like I say, nothing controversial about that, and it's it's a it's a good outcome. There's you know uh, some group that's very much in need of uh, uh, you know revenue, and that's going to be able to help out more unfortunate people. Um, that's that's a positive, no matter how you cut it. So I think uh, hopefully that's what they're thinking of too. Yeah, and and I, I do just want to add that I've seen some people out there who are sort of complaining about them not getting their money yet. That DraftKings takes people's money when they cheat to lose, but won't pay them when they cheat to win. Uh, I think that fundamentally misunderstands what happened here, that nobody ever would have caught them if they hadn't won and if they hadn't been a famous couple. This was a very unique circumstance that allows something you'd never detect otherwise to be detected. And I think it's crazy to say that DraftKings should have caught them before this. Uh, but I I'm hoping ultimately they'll rule that it was collusion and thus convince some players out there not to do it going forward. I just feel like if they don't rule that way, if they ultimately say we couldn't find anything wrong with what they did, it encourages everyone else to, to team up with their buddies, uh, assuming that they have the bankroll to mass multi-enter week after week. Yeah, there's not, fortunately, there's not too many of those people. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Somehow they keep generating these uh, multi-million dollar prize pools. But uh, yeah, cer certainly I'm not a threat to uh, enter 150 lineups <laughs> in anything, but some not people yet. are, I guess. Right. <laughs> not yet. Thank you. Um, all right. Our next story is a bit more straightforward in Michigan where online sports betting, online casino, and online poker have all been legalized and will be launching in 2020, the major companies are starting to partner up with tribes and casinos so they can have a presence in the state. On Monday morning, the Stars Group announced an online market access agreement with the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Ottawa Indians Gaming Authority, which will bring FoxBet to Michigan. On the same day as the Stars Group's announcement, PointsBet announced a partnership with the Public Enterprise and Finance Commission of the Lakview Desert Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians and indicated it will offer both sports betting and online casino. So that's two. We assume FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, and others will follow. The limit in the state for now is 12 total sports betting skins. But here we go. The ball is rolling in Michigan. I'm not sure how much analysis is required here, John, but do you like what you're seeing so far about the way Michigan is approaching sports betting? Are they coming close enough to meeting your demand that each state just do what New Jersey is doing? Uh, well, it's good to hear that the LTBBOIGA uh, has a partnership here and uh, also the PEFC of the LVDBLSCI uh, is partnering too. So that's important, but um, actually more seriously, this is really big. Um, it's a partnership with tribes finally. Um, that is a complicating issue for California, for Florida, for New York as well, you know, three of the biggest states. And if Michigan can lay out any sort of template for cooperation between states and tribe compacts, uh, remember, these are sovereign nations not automatically run over by any state legislatures. Um, then in the long run, the size of the U.S. sports betting industry could explode. So um, I've been surprised to see so little apparent progress in with Native American tribes and, and uh, other, other partners in the last 18 months. But this Michigan, it could be a liaison state, not as big as those big three, but larger than most, so worth uh, worthy of notice for the for the big ones. 
Yeah, um, th- that's an important thing to, to point out with regard to the tribes and all that. Um, I, I was just looking at the the in the rules, the number of skins per tribe and obviously comparing it to New Jersey. And I, I think I don't think there's anything wrong with one skin per tribe or, or per property, as long as you have enough properties in your state. I, I don't think any state really needs 19 online sports books, which I think is what we're up to in New Jersey now. Um, you have eight in Pennsylvania with uh, a few more still to come. They'll have up to 12 in Michigan. I think that's enough. As long as you don't have a situation like Rhode Island, where there are only the two casinos that can have online sports books, that's when that's a case where maybe you need to allow maybe three skins per property. Uh, but anyway, so so far so good in Michigan with a population of about 10 million, as best I can tell. Uh, yeah, like you said, they're not going to challenge for the title of absolute highest monthly betting handle once the market matures but they're at least at least poised to be right up there in that second tier uh, not too far behind yeah and I, th- I think new jersey set a good example where they were willing to have up to 42 skins which everybody knew was was too many right. but how, how many was too many and the the thinking in new jersey at the time year and a half ago was that uh it might be uh you know, 25 or 30 would be able to work. Um, and it turned out to be a little high. And, you know, I think we both agree that the 19 or so is probably going to reduce to maybe a dozen. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it's helpful for the states to figure out, well, how much is too limiting? And I think you're right about the dozen or so is fine. If you have less than that, you, you might be cutting into both competition, you know, help for consumer, uh, you know, and all that. But uh, But more than that is probably excessive anyway. Agreed. All right, for our final story this week, we'll go a little off the beaten path and talk about horse racing, Uh, although it's a story that's connected to sports betting and is centered in the highly important gambling state of New Jersey. As my partner John wrote in an article published Thursday morning, the Meadowlands Racetrack announced this week a 26% increase in betting handle at the track in 2019. This comes in the first year of the New Jersey horsemen operating with a $20 million purse subsidy, $6 million of which went to the Meadowlands. The purse subsidy deal specified, however, that the tracks needed to show that the subsidy was working in order to keep getting it every year. And... Well, 26% increase, I'd say it's working. Uh, Tracks like the Meadowlands and Monmouth Park are also benefiting from the addition in 2018 of sportsbooks. Uh, So, John, you spoke directly to the operators. Are they about as optimistic about their businesses as they've been in recent years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this almost guarantees the full subsidy being renewed and frankly, even a little less attention paid maybe by the legislators down the road because the the increase might be not quite as big next year. But um, where this matters most by far is standard bed racing, also known as harness racing. Um, You know, the Meadowlands wasn't always the most important harness racing track in the world um, uh, until it opened in 1976. That day it became the most important harness racing track in the world. About 50,000 fans showed up and they knocked down the entry barriers where you're supposed to pay $1 to get in and then the operators realize, you know, I mean, if they're going to gamble anyway, it's not really such a tragedy that they get in for free. Um, So the fate of that industry worldwide, I'm talking Canada, Sweden, Australia, among the most enthused countries uh, for this sport. um, It depends in part on what happens to the Meadowlands. So I covered Governor Christie almost shuttering the Meadowlands about uh, a decade ago in Monmouth Park as well, um, before the horsemen themselves took control. And I just see this as a good government result, you know, provide a subsidy to business, but demand proof annually that it is helping. And it has. So it's a huge story in the harness racing community and a boost to the thoroughbreds at Monmouth also. And I think, uh, you know, a good template for any legislature in any state uh, when they're handing over subsidy to have accountability. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and this is good to see that it's working. Cause it, it doesn't always work this way, but a lot of the time, if you put money into something, as long as the people in charge know what they're doing and know how to spend it intelligently, it helps you make money. You, you got to spend money to make money and all that stuff. Uh, so, you know, I have no personal investment in the health of the horse racing industry, but I'm, I'm glad to see the, the cash infusion is helping and the sports betting uh, certainly helps too. Yeah, and I find it remarkable that uh, horse racing bettors around the country pay such close attention to dozens of racetracks so that when the subsidy comes in, especially for the Meadowlands, and the quality of the races go up, the number of races go up, the number of horses per field go up, um, they notice that. They become more interested in wanting to bet there, and they shift their, their gambling dollars a little bit um, to a, a track like the Meadowlands. So you know, having better quality races uh, really does make a tangible difference. Yeah. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. As we just discussed a few minutes ago during the news segment, it's been an eventful week in DFS. And not only do we have this fascinating Bachelor DraftKings controversy, but there are some kind of important football games on the calendar between the NFL playoffs divisional round and the college football championship game. So it's a perfect week to bring onto the podcast for his third appearance, Roto Grinders Director of Media, Dan Bach. Dan, welcome once again to Gamble On. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, been an eventful week here in DFS, to say the very least. <laughs> yeah, uh, the kind of thing no one can see coming. So uh, so we already broke down uh, some of the details of the situation on, on the show. So I'm curious for your opinions on, on the key uh, cruxes of this matter. In a court of law, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. From everything you know about this Jade Tanner DraftKings case, do you feel like the evidence is there beyond a reasonable doubt to say that there was either collusion or multi-accounting? Yeah, I think when you look at both of those situations, because I think that's the key, I think it might be tough to make a distinct claim that it's one or the other, but when you look at them both together, I think it's pretty safe that one of those two things took place and uh, you know it's really kind of ramping up here you know the the guy who finished second in the million maker just retained an attorney today and I think that you know this is I'll say spiraling out of control but DraftKings needs to make a decision on how they want to handle this quickly and uh, I don't think this is ever going to see a courtroom I think there's going to be a lot of negotiations happening between uh, all the parties involved, and probably a lot of NDAs to be signed as well. But I definitely think, you know, there is a ton of smoke around what people are talking about in terms of the rules being broken. And I also think it's important for DraftKings to uh, to make a statement in the, in the sense of, hey, if we find people breaking our rules, we are going to do something about it. And because they've always kind of stood by the, we investigate things, but we don't discuss because of privacy reasons or whatnot. So we have no idea how many of these other cases they could have potentially even snuffed out because they don't tell you that. Now, here's something that's very public, and I think it's time for them to get in front of it and tell us what they found, whether even if they found that they believe she's the one that entered the contest, that's fine. But the last thing that I want is a lawyered response from DraftKings about this. I don't know if we're going to get anything non-lawyered from them, but uh, it's that's where I kind of stand on this. 
Yeah, and as you said, it's only getting more complicated now that the the runner-up has lawyered up here. Um, you know, just looking at the, I don't want, I hesitate to use the word evidence, but a lot of circumstantial evidence, I think, in parts of this. But the one thing to me that feels like the smoking gun, if there is one, is the quarterbacks, the that distribution. I think you can explain away a lot of the rest of it, but it just looks to me like this was a case of laziness in covering tracks. You know, I'm going to do these three quarterbacks with this account and these other three quarterbacks with the other account and then distribute all my other players normally. Uh, that's to me where it crosses beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you, do you agree that that's maybe the, the, uh, the firmest piece of evidence here? I think it might be uh, – I don't know about the firmest because okay. the, the thing about it is, you know, I think that actually – boils down to the collusion side of things because you're right if two people are working together the way those lineups were built it, it makes a lot of sense to 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 think like they were built together there was just no overlap of of that position um but you also you know do we look back beyond that i mean they did this for like 17 weeks during the regular season and for me that's like the biggest red flag here is to think that every contest that she has entered that i've looked at she max entered and he max entered that really stinks. That's, I mean, you're talking like upwards of $6,000 a week between the two of them into this contest. So, um, you know, I think that the collusion angle, if they want to go there, they can look at the player pool and the way the lineups are built, and I think you're on to something. But I still firmly believe this is more likely a case of multi-accounting where you've got one person who's trying, who's basically exceeding the entry limits because it just doesn't make a lot of sense for – two people to play that many lineups unless they're just total DFS degenerates. And I just don't think that she is. So, uh, that, I mean, that's, I, I'm a DFS degenerate and, and I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So, uh, it's just hard for me to believe that there's two of those type of people in the same household. Right. Uh, Dan, you know, we have some subscribers, obviously, who are more like poker players, sports bettors, horse racing. Uh, there are just uh, various forms of gambling, but maybe not as much daily fantasy sports, especially if they skew on the older side like um, me. And um, <laughs> so I, I, one thing I noticed uh, because in that context is, um, you know, most of these winners always seem to be, you know, Nelly 18 or whatever. And here you have two people who are sort of well-known, uh, using their own names. Um, a, how often do people actually use the real names? And B, is there any upside to it? I'm seeing a downside here, but I, I don't know if there's any upside. Yeah, I, I actually do think there is some upside from a branding side of things for a lot of people who uh, are trying to make a name for themselves, whether it's as you know a, a tout in the world of daily fantasy mm -hmm. or even these two. I mean, you can look at them and they're, they make a lot of money in, in advertising from Instagram. Now, if they were above board and did nothing wrong, like, let's be very clear here. If she had put five lineups in and one of those five lineups won the Millie Maker, heck, she probably would get an endorsement with DraftKings because there would be no controversy. Like, it would have been great for her, um, for her brand. The problem is, you know, if you're going to be public about it and if you're going to be a public figure like these two are, better be on the up and up because you're going to have that many people, that many more people looking into you and aware of your situation. And, you know, let's be very frank too. Like if she doesn't win the million dollars, if, if Tanner wins the million dollars, very likely we never even realized that Jade was playing DFS, let alone firing 150 lineups. So this was like a perfect storm situation to expose two people who potentially could be breaking the rules 
Um, so in, in terms of the names themselves, I don't think there's that much downside. But as we saw, um, you know, in this situation, there obviously was. Uh, all right, so shifting gears to actual sports talk, I, I want to get your take on this weekend's NFL playoff slate, the last good DFS slate of the season, the last one that covers more than two games. We have some elite fantasy quarterbacks in action, including Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, and, and Russell Wilson, and certainly Tannehill, Garoppolo, and Cousins have proven capable of big games too. Which one do you expect to be the most popular tournament play on the slate, and is there a cheap play at some other position who you love this week who can help you fit some of the expensive superstars into your lineups? Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting here looking at uh, these four games because I think in the AFC, you, you've you got the, the big favorites here. Like, I like the favorites in the AFC. I like the underdogs in the NFC here to to potentially win this this game. And, you know, the, the one thing that – I'm really looking at here from the quarterback position, you know, Lamar Jackson has been outstanding this year. There's no doubt about it, but you know, the one thing that we have to consider as well when building our lineups is what is, you know, a a player's ownership going to be. There's not that much of a spread from a quarterback side of things because there's only eight of them and a lot of people will spread that out. So, you know, I think Lamar Jackson is the smart play today uh, this week just because he does everything. He, he literally calls his own number at the goal line. He's going to win the MVP award. He can pass for touchdowns. And even though he's really expensive, I just don't think that as many people are going to want to pay up for him. So uh, I'm probably going to play him with an extra week's wet rest against the Tennessee defense. Uh, I'm not particularly sold on. And in terms of like the value guy out there, uh, the one guy I'm looking at, I think Emmanuel Sanders is kind of interesting here for San Francisco. Even though I think Minnesota can win this game, Sanders, um, a pretty decent price tag on DraftKings at 5400 And uh, I think that you're going to have Minnesota really focus on trying to stop the tight end, uh, George Kittle. And Sanders is a guy with a lot of experience, and I'm just not overly impressed with this uh, Minnesota secondary this year. So, I think Manny Sanders is going to be kind of a little bit off the radar for you in DFS this week that can help you out. Okay, so so Lamar is sort of your favorite play at uh, at quarterback, you're saying. Uh, yeah. In terms of who you think will be the highest owned, do you think maybe it's Mahomes because he's up against a, a vulnerable Houston defense and he's a little less expensive than Lamar? Yeah, and I think it'll be Mahomes too because the one thing you like to do when you build your lineups is pair them up with mm-hmm. uh, wide receivers and tight ends and you know, you've got Tyreek Hill, you've got Travis Kelsey. The problem with Lamar Jackson is, you know, you've got a, a nice tight end there in Mark Andrews, but outside of him, there's not a lot of consistency or upside in some of these other pass catchers that go along with him. So I think naturally people like to build those correlated lineups and, uh, you know, our ownership projections on Roto Grinders has, you know, Patrick Mahomes uh, about 7% higher than Lamar Jackson on this slate. So, I mean, either of these two guys are, are really good plays. There's no question about it. I don't know that quarterback is probably going to win you the GPP this week. It's probably going to have to be, a, you know, finding somebody else who goes for three touchdowns that a lot of people don't have. Like Marshawn Lynch is maybe an interesting one as well. They're saying he, they're going to give him more carries. Travis Homer didn't really do anything last week. And, you know, that matchup against Seattle or against Philadelphia, that's a tough one for running back. So, you know, Lynch at under 5K, there's a running back that I think has multi-touchdown upside that uh, maybe a lot of people won't play. Yeah, Dan, looking ahead to 
the uh, uh, college football championship game. Uh, this is always unique uh, every year in the sense that um, there's so much time off these teams have had. Even now with the semifinal, you get two weeks off, so it's less than before. But still, um, you know, it's a long time since the regular season uh, has gone on. So, yeah, I think there are annually people who like either, you know, forget September and October games. They were young then, and let's just look at recent record. Uh, you can go by how did each team's conference do in the bowl games, and is that to uh, tell you anything? So there's there's a lot of different possibilities. One I think people like too is how experienced are the coaches and players in having had a month off or or even in playing in, in a semifinal game before a final game. Uh, are any of those some things that you really kind of like year to year and, and you could be specific to this year too if you like? Yeah, you know, I think some of that comes into play, but, you know, from an experience side of things, that's the big difference here between Clemson and LSU. You've got a Clemson team with a head coach in Dabo Sweeney who's done this on numerous occasions. You've got a quarterback in Trevor Lawrence who uh, walked into the game last year versus Alabama and had, you know, one of the best championship games we maybe have ever seen for a QB. Now, on the flip side of that, and you know, you could say, well, guess what? He performed last year in this situation. Why can't Joe Burrow do the same with very little um, experience in, in a championship setting? And I think that's a, that's a fair adjustment to make to or assessment to make. Uh, for me, you know, as I look at this game, I, I just think we're going to see a ton of points being scored. the The one thing about LSU is you've not been able to slow this team down offensively all season long. I don't think that starts here on Monday when they when they play and. I look at Clemson's side of things. They've got offensive playmakers all over the field. they got two dynamic wide receivers. They've got a great running back. Uh, Lawrence this season has run the ball, you know, about 10 times more in terms of yardage and touchdowns than he did a year before. So this is a guy who's a, a bringing a new weapon to his game. So I, I just feel like the defenses in this game don't matter. I think it's going to boil down to which team – you know, has almost the ball last because I think this is going to be a shootout. I think the total's sitting at 70 in this game, mm. and uh, and I don't think that's high enough. Uh, I think these defenses uh, are not particularly good, and both these offenses are extremely explosive. So give me the over in uh, the national championship game. All right, great stuff. Always great talking to you, Dan. Uh, everybody follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore Bach, and his last name is spelled B-A-C-K. Follow his stuff on Roto Grinders. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again. Before I get out of here, what are your usernames to make sure we don't have 300 gamble on lineups this weekend? <laughs> Please, just, just check thanks again, fellas. Love doing it. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to our NFL playoff pick shortly. But first, we update our betting bankroll. And it was an interesting week. We went two and three overall, but we made money because of the odds and the sizes of the bets. Uh, first, the losing bets. Uh, John took the over in the Saints-Vikings game. None of the games last weekend went over. Uh, so we lost $107 there. And then in golf, we had Matthew Wolf for both the top 10 and for first place for a combined $110. And both lost, although the top 10 was a, a tough beat. You want to explain it, John? <laughs> yeah, this was a classic. Um, so Wolf is the youngest of the 34 champions in this uh, PGA Tour champs only field. He's 21. Um, 
he was in that top 10 that we wanted after each of the first three rounds, something like plus 266 for us, I think. And um, he stayed there at the turn on Sunday after nine holes, uh, made, makes a double bogey, then rallies. So he only needs a birdie in the last par five for a win, as it turns out. Uh, he made par and got a two-way tie for 11th. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. Yeah. All right. Well, on the positive side, uh, I loved that plus 198 price on the Titans money line against the Patriots, and they delivered. So we won $198. And I took the under on the 45 point total in the Seahawks Eagles game. And let's play the clip of John Stradamus answering my question about whether to bet it points bet style. I think uh, both teams are going to struggle to move the ball. I mean, you can get beat by, uh, you know, pick sixes and such, but um, I don't even think that's going to happen. So, yeah, I, I think he can play a little bit with the points bet here. 17-9 uh, might happen again. Creepy stuff there, uh, John, predicting the 17-9 <laughs> final score. Uh, it was a painful final score for me as yeah. an Eagles fan, uh, but a good one for our bankroll. Uh, we bet $10 a point and won $190. So, overall... We won $171, chipping away at our debt. We're now behind by a modest $440, and we still have $860 on hold in futures bets, so that leaves us with exactly $8,700 available to bet this week, and I'm up first. And FanDuel Sportsbook has some fun NFL props for this weekend, and one of them is betting on an individual player to have the most rushing yards this weekend. And I like the price on Lamar Jackson, plus 650 Consider, he was 8th in the league in rushing yards per game this season with 80.4. In the playoffs, you don't leave anything out there on the field. If he sees an opportunity to scramble, he's taking it. He's going for every yard he can get. He's less likely to give himself up with a slide than during the regular season. And even during the regular season, he wasn't a big give-himself-up-with-a-slide kind of guy. Um, But... Add to that that Mark Ingram may or may not be injured, so Lamar might be called upon to carry the ground game even more than usual. And look at the shorter money options. Derrick Henry is priced at plus 150 up against a good Ravens defense, and it's possible the Titans fall behind and they have to throw the ball. Dalvin Cook, plus 400 up against a good 49ers defense and possibly playing from behind. Aaron Jones isn't bad at plus 550, but then you have Lamar at plus 650, followed by Mm. Mostert, Hyde, and then some long shots. If Lamar is going to put up the most rushing yards more than 13.3% of the time, we're getting a good price here. I think we are. So let's risk... $50 to win 325 bucks. And I'm tempted to sprinkle $10 on Marshawn Lynch at plus 2000 based on what Dan Bach had to say. But eh, I I guess even if he's a good fantasy play, I doubt he busts loose for a hundred yards or anything. So Mm -hmm. let's just go with Lamar. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Lynch on the TDs is one thing, but most rushing yards he's not going to have. So Um, now the national championship game, I like Clemson plus five and a half. Um, I think Ohio State was the best team. I said that months ago. I still do. Um, Clemson found a way to win. Um, LSU doesn't have as much, uh, uh, you know, title game experience as Clemson does. And um, I, I just think they find a way. But I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to shock you, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm going to parlay that. Dan convinced me on the over 70 uh, in his analysis. So I'm going to parlay uh, Clemson plus five and a half and the over 100 to win 380. Wow. Okay. Uh, this is uncharacteristic for yeah, you, John. But uh, uh, hey, uh, you know, you, 
you know I like to have some fun with parlays and gamble a little. So, uh, all right. And I figured you'd do something with the college football championship game since you knew I wouldn't. But uh, I And I was, just based on what little I know, I was looking at the line and feeling like Clemson seemed like the right side there. So good to good to hear you uh, confirm it. I don't know if I'll go so far as to parlay it uh, in uh, in real life, but I do like Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose one of them, and then I can explain to our listeners <laughs> next week why it's so dumb to do parlays. Right. So it's kind of a win-win. Either either we, we hit it and, uh, and we feel great about it and uh, the bankroll uh, expands or we don't hit it and uh, you get to uh, you get to impart a lesson upon our listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, my next bet, I'm going to get in an early bet on the first really major boxing match of 2020, the Tyson Fury Deontay Wilder rematch. And this is a bet that I don't expect to win, but the odds are just too inflated to resist. Uh, they fought to a controversial draw the first time. Fury deserved the decision. Uh, it ended up being scored a draw. Wilder very nearly knocked him out in the final round. So heading into the rematch, conventional wisdom says it's either Fury by decision or Wilder by knockout. Either of those uh, would be plus 150. Fury by knockout, which I think is extremely unlikely, is plus 360. And then there's Wilder by decision, priced at plus 1,200. Uh, that's crazy. There are definitely realistic paths to him winning on points. It should be about plus 500 or plus 600 in my view. So I will gladly risk $25 to win $300 on Wilder by decision at plus 1,200. But this fight isn't until February 22nd, so we have a little while before we get a result. All right. And I'm going to go under again, even though I lost my NFL under last weekend. Um, San Francisco, Minnesota, under 44. I don't think the Vikings get untracked at all. Uh, you know, Kirk Cousins had his day in the sun, and uh, he's not going to be able to repeat that. So that's just a 110 to win 100. Okay. Yeah, I, I like that one. I'm looking at that game also as a as a likely under unless, you know, you get a, a fluky defensive touchdown or something as is the only way in my view that that goes over. So good bet there. All right. We finish with our NFL playoff picks where last week both of us went two and two. Uh, we split our shared picks and we split our head to heads. Uh, I could complain about how one of my losses was by a mere half point in overtime, but I won't. Uh, just know that I could. Uh, anyway, uh, you're up first for the first game of the weekend. Yeah, and Eric, let's start with that 49ers uh, minus seven versus Vikings. Same game. Um, 49ers show some warts in the stretch run the regular season for sure, but it takes a special kind of mindset for a team like the Vikings to take down one 11 and three team like the Saints in overtime and then do it again the next week in San Francisco. I don't, I don't think they have it in them. Um, I like to say anytime a team gets to the point in a season where they can lose and it's still a successful season, they do. And that's where the Vikings are, and especially Kirk Cousins is. So even the Vi the 49ers minus seven. Okay. Uh, this is a tough one. For me, both of the Saturday games are, are, are pretty tough. Um, I took the Vikings getting more points than this last week. And I'm going to go against you and take them again here. I think yeah. they can hang and keep this close. Uh, the Niners defense grew increasingly mortal as the season went on. Cousins and the Vikings have some real self-belief at this point. I'm not saying they'll pull another upset, but I think they can keep this one within a single score. Uh, next up, Saturday night, the top-seeded Ravens are nine-and-a-half-point favorites at home against the Titans. And, man, I, I could see... Uh, two very different scenarios here. I could see the Ravens freezing up a little under the playoff pressure and the Titans, who are a legit good team, by the way, keeping it real close and, and the game comes down to a final drive one way or the other. Or I could see the Ravens blowing them out of the water. You know, it's 21 nothing at the end of the first quarter and, and Baltimore wins by like 40. Which one is more likely? I believe in this Titans team. You can't totally shut down Derrick Henry. 
Maybe Tannehill chokes and throws three picks, but I kind of lean toward him performing decently and keeping it close. I'll go with the Titans to cover, uh, not to mention that uh, at plus 340 on the money line, I might have a few bucks on them to pull the upset. But uh, just for the purposes of this little competition, I will take the Titans getting nine and a half points. Yeah, I pretty much agree uh, across the board. The spread's just a little bit too big. Um, the Titans can score, and they have an amazing running back in Henry. Um, you know, quarterback Tannehill didn't need to pass for 100 yards for the Titans to beat the Patriots in New England. So imagine if he gets 150. So give me that <laughs> nine and a half. Okay. And then next up, we have the Chiefs, uh, again, minus nine and a half. This is against the Texans on Sunday. Uh, another big spread. This one is tougher right, to me. Um, the Texans won outright here at midseason, but ultimately I think that does them in in a way. Um, Andy Reid still doesn't know how to manage timeouts or a late-game clock, but give him two weeks to prepare for a team that has beaten him before that season, I think he can be lethal. Uh, I expect significant changes in the defensive sets, and uh, that's going to be lead to success. So give me the Chiefs minus nine and a half. All right, yeah, we're we're on the same side of, of this one, and I thought both of these Sunday games were were easier than the Saturday games. Uh, the Chiefs are just a much better team here. I think you can throw out what happened in in Week Six when Kansas City was banged up. Uh, I expect the Chiefs to win this game going away. The only reason to hesitate is Andy Reid. He's twelve and fourteen lifetime in the playoffs, including two and five in Kansas City. All those years, he didn't win too many games as an underdog, but he lost more than his share as a favorite. Maybe this is Andy's year. It really could be. The Chiefs are a good team with a great quarterback. Uh, but would you be at all surprised if Reed gets bounced in the divisional round as a big home favorite? Uh, I'll still take the Chiefs, though. They should win comfortably. Uh, yeah. So uh, last game is the Packers hosting the Seahawks. Green Bay favored by four. I don't think too highly of either of these teams, but... Man, after seeing Seattle eke by the Eagles last week, even after Jadavian Clowney took out Carson Wentz with an apparently perfectly legal helmet-to-helmet hit to the brainstem, uh, seriously, despite that, you go down to the wire against Josh McCown, Boston Scott, Greg Ward and company. The Seahawks just aren't half as good as their record suggests. Russell Wilson is. He he is great. Uh, but the rest of this team is average at best. I think it's the perfect setup for Green Bay. They had a week to rest. I fully expect them to cover the four points here, assuming Clowney doesn't swing a mace at Aaron Rodgers' head or anything. <laughs> yeah, this one's a challenge to me, too, because I agree. Neither team deserves their current perch. So mm-hmm. I don't think the Seahawks could have staggered past Carson Wentz, frankly, in that game. So I don't like them here either. Um, Packers minus four, but uh, don't buy the Packers all the way. Yeah, neither team is going to be hosting a trophy anytime soon. Right. Okay, but you are taking uh, the Packers in this one. So we're on the, yes. on the same side of both Sunday games. So I guess we're on the same side of uh, three of these. Just the only disagreement is Niners and Vikings. Mm-hmm. All right. That'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Dan Bach. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, please do your thing and take us out. Well, you know, Eric, I love that you replayed my eerie 17-9 again, Eagle Seahawks line from last week. But uh, the real story is that the Bachelor DraftKings scandal did nothing but percolate a little bit on Twitter Sunday night until your story went viral the next morning. Uh, it didn't quite break the Internet, as I kind of jokingly predicted, but it reached literally millions. And uh, frankly, it hampered my research into recollections of uh, Jaden Tanner because everything on the internet now about them is from your story so kudos to that and you know like many power couples uh, we'll just got to make sure to communicate so we both still feel powerful you know but let's face it for the moment this is the Gamble On podcast presented by Bachelor Scandal Investigator Eric Reskin and some random co-host so uh, I will endeavor to boost my standing though in the coming weeks 
And with that, until next time, gamble on.